This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. John and Shirley Dick's daughter, Elle, first started developing problems swallowing when she turned 10 months old. As her difficulty eating progressed, she stopped growing. Her parents grew frustrated by doctors dismissing her symptoms until a passing comment that she seemed to have a sensitivity to light allowed a specialist to diagnose her with the rare lysosomal storage disorder, cystinosis. We spoke to the Dicks about Elle's diagnostic odyssey, how having the diagnosis changed care for her, and the challenges they faced caring for a child with a rare condition. John, Shirley, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks, Danny. We're going to talk about your daughter, L. Cystinosis, and what living with this condition has meant for you as a family. I'd like to start when Elle was around 10 months old and she began having problems swallowing. Shirley, what happened? So around 10 months old, Elle actually got a stomach bug and was sick for a few days. And we noticed after she recovered from that stomach bug that when we presented table food to her, she didn't really swallow it. She just kind of chewed it up and spit it out or kind of played in it. Um, And she would eat, if she did eat, it was very minimal amounts. Like she would eat a little, a few bites of yogurt and a few bites of hummus. And that was about it. She really didn't swallow any food that was given to her. It was after her 15 month appointment that things started to change. What happened then? And when did you realize that there was something more serious going on? So at her 15-month appointment, the doctor noticed that she had not um, grown any in height, nor had she gained any weights in comparison to her 12-month appointment. So she was not growing. She was not going up on the scale or on the curve. Um, I did point out to the doctor that she still was having difficulty swallowing food, that she really wasn't interested in eating much. She was still only taking little bites of hummus and yogurt here and there, um, and that she was still spitting out a lot of her food. So I did ask for a referral for therapy, and I did get that referral. We started feeding therapy, and we were also sent to a nutritionist who basically told us that we needed to get more calories in her to help her grow, and he just gave us a few recipes of different smoothies and things to try to try and get her to eat and um, get some more calories in her. John, at the time you were working as an emergency department clinical care RN in a level one trauma center, as someone who works in a serious medical environment, what was going on in your mind? How good a handle on the situation did you think the doctors had? Um, 
I mean, that's a, that's a very good question. I think that um, from, you know, from the work at that point in time, I had been in the, in the emergency department for about four years. And, and I think one of the things that we do really well in the emergency department is really know when to get worried. Um, and I, that was one of the hardest parts is that we were very, very worried. And it seemed like we were the only ones that were that worried. It was, um, you know, very blase attitude um, to what we felt like was, was a little girl that was, was kind of wasting away right in front of us. Um, you know, so, so as evidenced by, you know, the plan of care that they had in place for, I mean, they were kind of ignoring the elephant in the room that she didn't swallow anything other than, you know, breast milk, small amounts of food and a ton of water. Um, so right off the jump, when they came back to us with, Hey, here's this really, really thick smoothie and have her drink this, you know, just kind of cock your head like that puppy look. You're just like, did you not hear anything that, you know, that we were talking about? And, you know, it, um, it really made it clear that we were going to have to, to really try to steer where this was going to go because, um, you know, and, and to be honest with you, Dan, at that point in time, we really didn't know where this was going, but we certainly knew that this was more than just an aversion of food or just a, a finicky or picky eater, uh, the way they kind of um, portrayed L to B. Well, her health continued to worsen. There was a, a call you got from a resident in the emergency department of the local children's hospital. When did that happen and what happened with that call? So we ended up getting that call because we had to follow up with our pediatrician at 18 months. And at 18 months, she had actually lost some weight. So she referred us to get blood work done through endocrinology. Um, we went um, and got the blood work done. But prior to that, we also got um, sent to feeding team at the hospital to kind of check her out and see where things were going. Um, and they also said it was nutrition based. We just need to get more calories in her. Um, so after she, um, we went to see the endocrinologist, she actually did several tests, thyroid, diabetes, because we were saying how much she was drinking water, chugging it, wanting it all the time. Um, she was wetting at night, like soaking through. So she got the blood work done. And I received the call while I was at work that day. And the first thing the doctor said was, are you sitting down? And I said, no, but I can, I'm at work. And she said, you're going to need to bring Ellen right away. Her labs are very concerning. Um, she's very dehydrated and we need to get her back in and do some more blood work. She's like, and you need to pack a bag to be ready to be admitted. Um, so I had immediately left work right away, ran home to get Elle, um, got a hold of John, and we packed a bag, and I went back to the hospital that day, got more lab work done. Um, same thing showed up. She was very dehydrated. They were very concerned about her labs. Her electrolytes were pretty much bottomed out. Uh, so we had got admitted that night to the hospital, um, and that night they... Um, placed an NG tube down her nose and throat immediately once we got into a room because they said she needed nutrition and she needed it very quickly. She's got yeah. this NG tube. She's constantly pleading for water. Uh, a doctor at the time tells you that this, this constant demand for water is behavioral, which, which is kind of mind-blowing to think, but 
that point, John, you demanded she be discharged. Why and, and what happened? Yeah, I, you know, it was, <clears throat> and I, you know, it was a, uh, it was, it, you know, obviously it's a lived experience. And I, and I, I talked with Shirley and, you know, from, from my standpoint, um, we weren't really, we weren't really, the interventions that, that they were doing was really just to kind of monitor. Um, they really didn't have an understanding on why every time we asked them, why is she drinking so much water and why is she so dehydrated? Um, you know, you, you got answers like, well, sometimes we just don't know why kids don't want to eat or don't want to drink. And so I felt like if that was going to be the answer, then we can certainly do this in a place that's less intimidating, that has less beeping noises, that my daughter can actually get some sleep. Um, and, you know, I, and I think one of the benefits here is that I know how kind of the hospital system works and I, and, you know, I kind of know how to push things a little bit. And so I, I made it very, very clear that uh, we were not going to be spending any more time in here that from what they were doing from our standpoint was something that we could do at home. Um, I, you know, as an emergency department nurse, an NG tube is, is not uncommon to see. You see people in the emergency department when they're in their worst state, right? We don't discriminate on who comes there. So if somebody's having a very, very bad panic attack, but happens to have an NG tube, I'm expected to understand how to use that. So, you know, none of that was, was really, really scary for us. And, and I felt like in, in the home setting, it would just be much better for Elle. Um, so we, you know, we, we demanded for the discharge and they honored that request, um, with, uh, the stipulation that we follow up with, you know, a team of doctors to which of course we were agreeable to. Yeah. And, and how is her health progressing at this point? And at what point did she progress to a, a gastric tube? So she actually really struggled with the NG tube. Um, every time they pushed a formula in through it or we pushed a formula into it, uh, she threw up. She was constantly throwing up. She still wasn't gaining any weight. Um, they were trying all sorts of different formulas, trying to push all sorts of different stuff um, to use to get, in, to get her nutrition and, and nothing seemed to be working. And um, she probably had that NG tube for, I think, eight months and it yeah, was, actually she, yeah, she had it. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. So she had it for eight, eight months. Um, yeah, that was a, I'll be honest with you. That was a very, very dark time for us because, you know, you get the NG tube in and you say to yourself, okay, well, we've got this route to get nutrition in. Um, but there, you know, the elephant in the room from my standpoint was just that there was, we still didn't understand what was causing this. So we were being very, very reactionary with everything and that reaction wasn't working. So the reaction to her not eating was let's put the NG tube in. And, you know, when I, when I say like cyclical vomiting in the medical, medical terminology, what that means is, you know, vomiting, you know, in excess of, of, of 10 times in a day. L was probably throwing up closer to 25 to 30 times a day. Dry heaving just could not keep anything down. Um, you know, and, and as, as a father, you know, the look of, of terror in your, in, in your child's eye when, when she's actually gagging back up the NG tube and you're watching this tube come out of her nose and you've got to push it back in. Um, you know, I have, that, that's something that, that I, that sits with me a lot, you know, and, and, Unfortunately, you know, we, we kind of dragged our feet on that um, to get her progressed to a G-tube. And I think it was just wanting 
to believe that everything was okay. And this was just kind of a finicky little eater, but the writing was on the wall, you know, and we probably had that NG tube in probably about eight months too long, to be honest with you. And, you know, in hindsight, and obviously hindsight being perfect vision, um, we should have just gone for the G tube right then and there. Um, I think had we have had the diagnosis then, we obviously would have gone to the G tube. Um, but yeah, it still it still haunts me to this day about the kind of lasting uh, trauma that 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 we put her through, um, the unnecessary trauma that we put her through there. Um, so I think the you know the fifty thousand foot view is is that we're doing all this, but we still don't have a real diagnosis, and she's just continuing to you know to get smaller. Yeah. And how old is Elle at this point? She's six years old right now. No, I'm I'm sorry. When when she had the uh, the gastric tube for six months or eight oh, months? She, yeah. She when did she get that tube? Um, John, do you happen to remember? I can't even remember when she got it. I she was two and a half, I believe. Yeah, she, yeah, because I remember she still had pictures on her second birthday of the NG tube in. So, I so think she you, in you've been going through this ordeal for 18 months, two years at that point. What kind of a stress is that on you as caregivers? Uh, are you still trying to hold the job down at the same time? Are you have uh, any support from other family members? So it was actually a very, very stressful time. Um I actually, I ended up going part-time because she, it was just so hard to get anything in her and she just kept losing weight. Um, and it was a lot of commitment and responsibility to put on someone else to care for her, especially with the NG tube. So um, my job was, very understanding and I was able to find a job share partner where I could end up working two to three days a week um, and I actually still to this day continue to do that because she was needing so much help with the NG tube and we were having so many appointments and we were just really really struggling to keep her healthy um, and to figure out what was going on so I did end up having to go part-time for that reason. Yeah. And I, um, I kept, I kept full time in the ER. Um, I think, you know, that I think there's probably, you know, some, a lot of reasons for that. I, obviously from a financial standpoint, um, you know, we were quickly finding that our deductible went away like that. Right. So at that first hospital stay, we, we had our deductible met for the entire year. Um, and, and so obviously there's, you know, a financial, you know, strain that that brings on the family. And with that obviously comes um, a lot of stress. And, you know, for, for me personally in the ER, I was finding it more and more difficult to give all of myself to these patients when I was crumbling on the inside myself. Um, there was very, very little time as far as, you know, um, any time for Shirley and I just to, just to be quiet with each other. That, that was just, that was just kind of non-existent. It was just, it was, um, you put out one fire and then the next one kind of pops up. And um, I've oftentimes said this, that, you know, cis, you know, and we can get to this when we talk about cystinosis, but it's one of those things where it, at least right now, what we were understanding was that the minute we felt like we had one thing figured out, that there was something else going on. 
And it, you know, it just, it's all consuming you, you know, how do you, how do you bargain time, you know, with somebody that needs everything from you and is just pleading, you know, pleading for, for someone to be an advocate for them. And so, you know, for sure, our, our relationship definitely um, was rocky. I mean, there was a lot of times where we were just so pissed off and angry and just, you know, you know, and we, you know, you try not to let any cynicism creep into it, but really we were dealing with people that at, at a point in time were kind of covering their eyes and throwing the spaghetti at the wall to see what would stick. And, you know, they, they have all these great ideas and these wonderful plans on paper, but then when you go home, the entire thing just blows up. And, you know, it, it, it certainly, um, and it's something to be said in, in the, you know, in, in the rare disease community, in the, in the chronic disease community, you can't ignore how much that affects um, the family unit and the family life. And um, I think we're doing so well right now. I think it's only because, you know, we recognize that that was something that we had to really work at. Do we do a great job at it? Nah, sometimes, right? <laughs> but but the, the reality of the situation was at that acute time, man, there's, there, there were very, there were some very, very quiet, terse moments there where, um, to be honest with you, I, I wasn't sure whether or not we were going to be able to get through it because it was just so much stress. Uh, thank God we did. But um, yeah, that's a very good question. It was, it was a hard, hard, dark two years, two to three years there. You were finally pointed to a pediatric endocrinologist. How did you come to see an endocrinologist? And when was that in this progress? So at... When she, when Elle turned three years old, she had still only weighed 20 pounds. So she still hadn't gained much from the time we started seeing doctors till she was three. Um, and then that summer she had only gained, I think a few more ounces. Um, and at that point at our follow-up visit in August, the GI doctor at the time said, hey, look, I feel like I'm failing you. She's still not growing. We're not getting anywhere. You guys have done all the legwork, any progress she has made. It's because of you guys. He said, I think you either need to go see a genetics doctor again or another endocrinologist. Um, and so we decided to go see an endocrinologist. We actually had a recommendation made by a family member um, of an endocrinologist that specialized in growth issues. So we made it a point that we wanted to see that particular endocrinologist. Um, the downfall to it was he was actually out on medical leave for uh, like two or three months. So it was going to take some time to get into him. But um, John and I talked and we said, if this, if he specializes in growth issues, then he's going to be worth the wait if someone can give us some answers. So we did, we got to see him in October. Um, I think it was October 10th actually, is when we got to finally have our appointment with him. And John, you, you seem to, I think, casually mention that she seemed to have an aversion to sunlight. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's actually, um, it's funny that you said that. It's, um, you know, when we saw, when we saw um, the endocrinologist, um, you know, I'll be honest with you, when we walked in, the, when we walked in the room, we knew that something was different here, namely because we weren't the only ones that were really, really, really worried. Um, you know, I, I remember it so clearly, you know, he, he took his, his little wire rim glasses off and he said, Jonathan, 
Surely, I, uh, I, I, I'm really, really concerned about Eleanor. I'm very concerned about Eleanor. He just didn't mince any words there. Um, and he went through um, kind of his reasoning on what was going on. And we kind of talked and we, we talked about the feeding issues and he looked at her and he, and, and he noticed that, um, that her cheeks were a little bit swollen, looked like she was holding a little fluid to him. Of course, to us, like the normalcy bias there just kind of takes all that away because you see it every single day and you don't think anything's really that wrong. But this fresh set of eyes, I mean, he was like a hawk. He was right on it. And everything about his energy just told me, like, I need to just listen to this guy and see what he has to say. And so we kind of talked through this. And I remember it very clearly, uh, the nurses there, um, where they were going to do a blood draw. And so we were getting kind of out prepped for that. And we did a good job of, of letting her understand like what that looks like. And she had been through a lot anyway with the, with the pricks and all this stuff. Um, and so... Um, the, the nurses were like, you know, like, well, do you need, you know, you need like a, you know, a cup to, to maybe, uh, or a hat, right? You go, go to the, the bathroom, pee in this hat, we need a little urine. And it was just the, the kind of the joke was, was that she had been potty trained for like a year and a half before that because of how frequently she had to go to the bathroom. And so there's this little girl that looks even smaller than she actually is just because of, um, you know, how the, you know, the kidney disease has kind of affected her at that point in time. It just blew everybody away. And she just looked up and she was like, no, I can be on the toilet. I'll pee in the cup. So, so, so Shirley, obviously with Shirley's help, they left the room and that's when um, the endocrinologist and I were in there at, you know, by ourselves. And we were kind of talking about it. And, and to your, to your question, there had been this nagging, nagging thing that had always been an issue with Eleanor and it was something that I, I, it just seemed so odd to me. And so I, I, I said to him, I said, you know, doc, I don't know this. I don't know if this is anything. I don't know if this is everything, but I, I feel like Eleanor has this weird aversion to sunlight. And I mean, really, really weird aversion to sunlight. And I'll never forget it. Like the, the, the color in his face dropped out. He looked right at me and he said, you said this, not me. You said that. Right. And I was like, yeah, I said that. Uh, and I, I at first was kind of taken aback because I thought I said something wrong. Um, I thought maybe there was there was something that I had overstepped my bounds. I didn't know. And right as I was kind of like looking at him a little odd, like, what's going on here? Surely an L walked back in. And he explained to me what one of the telltale symptoms of cystinosis is. And it is photophobia or an aversion to light, sunlight, any, any sort of light. And I, you know, because all of our you know, as Elle was growing up, she always preferred a rainy day with puddles over sunlight. It, you know, we would have it sometimes, you know, it was like, mom, can you turn the lights off in the house or wearing sunglasses inside? And so for him, you know, um, that was really kind of his confirmatory diagnosis. I think when we left the, the office that day, we had a very, very clear understanding of what we thought was going on with Elle. That, that's for sure. And at what point did you get a, a, a confirmed diagnosis and what was it like? Do you have a name to put to this condition? Um, well, you know, the, um, and it surely will endorse, you know, the, the way like the hospital system works is when you give that blood and you know, something is coming down the right. So we understood that after giving, giving the blood work, that we were going to get a call from a very, very, very nervous resident that had never seen anything like this before. Um, and like clockwork, um, later that night at about eight o'clock, we got a call that we have to get in right there right now. And, you know, 
we always say that, you know, this time around rushing into the hospital wasn't as panicked and wasn't as, um, you know, dire straits because we, we felt like there was actually a real path that we're following now. I think, you know, you, you kind of feel like you're, you're, you know, you're, you're on this boat in very, very choppy waters. You know, I'll be honest, it's a storm, right? There's a storm going on and you have no compass and you know, you're close to the shore and there's no uh, lighthouse. Right. And so what that diagnosis did for us, um, and we, we got the confirmed diagnosis later on um, when we came into the hospital that night and for the next couple of days that we were there, but we knew when we came in, I mean, it meant everything. It's, it's, it's like all of a sudden you have direction you know, and you forget just how necessary it is to have like a point to get to, and then just a way to try to get there, right? A compass to try to navigate these, these crazy waters that we're in. And, you know, for the first time, it was like, okay, we're actually going to start trying to do some things to actually help Elle, to actually help the symptoms that she has, um, to help her with whatever's going on right now. And later on, we learned that everything that she was going through was because, you know, at that point in time, her kidneys were starting to fail, you know, um, and she was what they would call in, in the hospital, they would call it metabolic acidosis, but it, it's a symptom of cystinosis. And essentially it makes these kids feel like they're breathing underwater. And I can remember so many times of little, little moments in my mind, kind of thinking back to when, you know, I was bathing her and she would suck the water out of the washcloth, you know, it just, you know, these, these heartbreaking moments of where she's trying without words, trying to give us like, Hey, this is what's going on. Help me, help me, you know? And, um, and finally having that diagnosis and, and mind you, just getting the diagnosis was just the start of the, was just started the whole thing. It's, it's like the actual hard work actually started then. Um, because I think there's a misnomer that the, that once you get diagnosis, everything's better. Well, you still have to, you know, get her to that point where she's stable now. So just because we had the diagnosis didn't mean that everything was fixed. Um, but it was, uh, it, it meant everything to us. I mean, it was, it was scary. Um, you know, you have the, that moment where you go home and you get on PubMed, at least I got on PubMed. I, I was a student at that point in time. So for me, that was very high level, but everybody else, what do they hop on? Like WebMD, you get on Google and you see these horrific, horrific stories and you, and you see the worst case scenarios. Um, and, and, and you, you, you feel like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like, what, what am I going to do? But after that panic kind of sets aside, you know, and, and I think we were, we were kind of galvanized in fire for the last three years before this, because we had our moment. But I sat down with Shirley and we both looked at each other in the eyes. We said that, you know, whatever, whatever happens, we are going to advocate for this little girl. We are going to do everything we can to give her the best care moving forward. And we're not going to stop until we get this thing cured. And, and that's it. And so that was our plan. Uh, how to get there was all about compartmentalization. So our big thing was what's the next best right step? Well, for listeners not familiar with cystinosis, what is it? How does it manifest itself and progress? Um, so, so I, you know, and, and I, I could get really, really medical on the jargon, but I don't think that that's what this is about. I and mean, it's so, so it's a rare, a very rare, um, you could probably classify it as an ultra rare uh, genetic disease. Um, there's only 2000 uh, children, uh, actually 2000 people in the U.S. that or I'm sorry, 2000 worldwide that have this. So it's very, very, very rare. 
Um, it's a lysosomal uh, storage disease. And the, and the lysosome, the way it was described to me um, and the way I remember, remembered it in nursing school, the lysosome is like the trash compactor of the cell. And in, these, in, in this patient population, this aggregate, um, they have a genetic mutation on this little CTNS gene that it's called. And all it means there is that there's this tiny little mutation. And what that means is that the person taking out the trash forgets to take out this one piece of trash. They take out everything else, but they don't take out this one piece of trash. And that piece of trash that's left over um, is called cysteine. And it, these crystals, they, they form crystals in the body. You know, crystals are great in rings, um, right? They're, 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 they're awesome outside of the body. Inside of the body, they play havoc because they're sharp and they don't look like a cell and they cut through everything and they end up just creating a, a ton of havoc. And so in this patient population, the cysteine crystals, they, um, they accumulate everywhere. There is mitochondria or a cell and there's not one part of the body that isn't affected. So uh, the kidneys, the eyes, um, the muscles, you get myopathies as well. Um, so it's, it really is this, um, I think the best way to describe it, I think the way that I think about it is it's like this octopus, right? And, you know, this, and I, and I came up with the octopus because I was trying to think of something that, got, that, that has more arms than two, more arms than me, right? More arms than me and my wife, four combined. And that's what it's about. It's like the minute you think you have a, a, little, a little piece of this, of this disease fixed, you know, the other arm part starts creeping up and starts talking about, oh, well, yeah, you know, you've got the kidney issues fixed, but uh, what are you going to do about the eyesight, right? And, and that's the other big thing here. And, and like I had said before, that the kidneys are the windows to the soul, the true um, ruling, uh, or I guess rule out scan to say this is cystinosis is something called a slit lamp test. And, you know, the, um, the eye docs come in and they shine a very specialized type of light. And what you'll see in these kids is that the back of their eyes um, have a certain shimmer to them. And that's the, the cysteine crystals that deposit in the cornea. Um, it's, uh, you know, before, before there was any, any treatment for this, and, you know, I have to be honest, you know, the, the outlook to this was very, very bleak. And, and a lot of, of kids that were born with this just 50, 60 years ago uh, didn't make it past, you know, the age of 20. And, um, you know, I can remember reading stories like that. Uh, unfortunately, we did have a run-in with kind of an, a little bit of an over-aggressive resident that, um, you know, basically made a comment that was just like, wow, you know, it's, we'll be lucky, you know, we'll be very surprised if she makes it to XXX this, this amount of age. And I was just blown away by it. You know, it's just, um, it, it was it's very, very hard to hear someone kind of talk about your daughter as, as kind of a case. And, and that was one of the things that we, that you have to do a lot in the rare disease community is you have to remind people that this isn't a case number. This isn't an MRN number. This is actually a real person um, who has dreams and wishes and hopes and fears. And, you know, that was one of the things that we really, really worked on, worked hard on is, 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 you know, making sure that people understand the person behind this disease is really the important part of this, not the disease. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it was, it, it was a lot to take in and learning about cystinosis um, moving forward was, was really kind of a life's passion. So it, it was something that I, that I put to myself to try to understand as much as I could. So, so I utilized everything I could as far as my academic sources, my academic resources, uh, the other physicians that are around me. I asked a lot of questions uh, and just really surrounded myself with as, as much um, material and evidence as I could to try to make the next best step. 
you found your way to a cystinosis center of excellence in California eventually. What has that meant for Elle's care and her health today? Well, you, you know what it really, you know, and I'll, and I'll take a step back from that. What, it, what really was the driving factor in that was the fact that we had, you know, for the first time at our, at our institution where we were at, we actually had a team that was on board that was the correct team that was on board, right? It's not to say that the, you know, the, the, the GI docs or the, or the tummy docs, you know, weren't important there. It's just that they shouldn't be steering the ship. And so once we had the nephrologist, you know, the nephrologist on board and the endocrinologist, um, we really, really had like the two captains at the helm that were really steering this thing to make things better. We found the um, doctor in California after we found um, a couple of the cystinosis uh, support groups um, and someone recommended uh, to go out to see him um, to kind of get well situated Um, because even after her diagnosis, you know, we were still struggling with um, her electrolyte balance, getting that figured out and she was still throwing up a ton. And our team of nephrologists was new to this diagnosis. So they were still trying to figure things out and how to, you know, help Eleanor as well. So they were actually on board with us going to see the nephrologist out in California and um, actually had connected with them through email and things and still continue to this day when we have questions that we can't quite figure out. Um, So when we went out to California, it was actually uh, myself, Elle, and at that time, uh, Finley, because I was pregnant when we got Elle's diagnosis. So he was only three months old. We went out there to speak with him. And he went over all the, I think Elle, I think he said Elle had a thousand pages of medical reports. Yeah. Um, so he went through every single bit of it. And um, he kind of helped lead us on next steps to kind of help get Eleanor through these next few months to try and get everything balanced out. So he recommended some things as far as like feeding and medication administration and other medications to try. Um, So we brought that back to the doctor and he connected with our doctor as well. And we kind of got all those things put in place. And once we got those things put in place, then we finally started seeing some stability in L. What has that meant for her health? So I'm not going to lie, these first few years of diagnosis uh, have been extremely hard, especially the first year, because it is literally a balancing act. You, she was going in for blood work pretty much like once a week, and then we would eventually get to, you know, once every two weeks, once a month. But it was a lot of blood work because you have to find the right dose of medication for her to balance her electrolytes out and to get her cysteine levels below where they need to be. Um, the medication makes her very sick. So it is has to be done in small increments until her body can handle it. So it takes a lot of time. I mean, it took months, months. It could have been even up to a year that Elle was able to handle all the amount of medicine that she needed without feeling so sick and even to this day anytime that we have to increase medication which you do every time they grow or gain weight um she still struggles so we always have to do it in very small increments over an extended amount of days before we can get her up to her new dose um she's now 
now six years old, and she's actually very stable. Um, she is in stage three kidney failure. Um, you know, we found that out pretty much right after diagnosis um, when we were admitted to the hospital. Um, so that is something we have to keep a close eye on. She, and forgive me, but what, what is stage three kidney failure? So that's, so, go ahead, John. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, there, there's just, you know, there, there's, there's certain, um, benchmarks that you would say as far as the filtration rate of what the kidneys put out. And so they give, you know, they, they give you, you know, kind of a rating scale on how to go and, you know, where, at the time of diagnosis, um, and unfortunately, because of the, you know, the, like the two and a half years of misdiagnosis of her, of her being in metabolic acidosis like that and being in such a, a harsh environment without the cysteine crystals, the reducing therapy on board, um, it got her to appointment. And, and I think right now it usually means, so stage three is roughly right around a little bit less than 50% kidney function. Um, in both kidneys. Um, the right and left are, are, are almost the same. One's a little bit better than the other. Um, but it's, you know, you can't deny the fact that it is a very aggressive stage of kidney failure um, for, her, for her age, right? So at six years old, being in stage three, what that is, you know, the writing on the wall there is going to mean that Elle is going to need to have a kidney transplant much earlier than she would have had it had she had been diagnosed as most kids are diagnosed right around the first year of life. So usually about nine months to about 12 months is, is the kind of the standard, you know, the average of what it looks like. And so, you know, Elle was, you know, past three years when she got her diagnosis. And so, you know, the direct, um, you know, causality there and what you see there is the, uh, is the lowered kidney function. You mentioned you had a, another child since. What's day-to-day life now caring for Elle doing your job, managing finances, you know, have, have things settled into a routine? Is it <laughs> something um, that you get more help with or how do you manage uh, you, all this? Well, you know, you know what it is, Danny, I think what it is is that we have gotten very adept at, at, at finding our tribe, finding, you know, the people that we can really, really count on. Um, you know, it, it stands the reason that, you know, when bad things happen, you kind of find out who, you know, who your real people are, you know, when the ship's going down and, you know, some people are the ones that we knew were going to be there. And some people we didn't think that, that we would get this level of help from and, and commitment from, um, you know, the, the day-to-day life, you know, everything, everything kind of goes on, um, you know, the big thing. And for anybody out there listening, um, Finley, my son, our son does not have cystinosis um, and is not a carrier for cystinosis either. So, uh, he had at that point in time, and I think it's, you know, it's a very, very unique situation when L was diagnosed, Shirley was six months pregnant. And so you can kind of imagine what that, what that looked like for the last three months of that pregnancy. But, um, you know, by the, by the grace of God, um, you know, we, we got really, really good news there. And, and Finley is, is a wonderful, wonderful little boy who just adores his, his big sister. And so, um, it's interesting we say big sister, but he's probably a little bit bigger. He's getting almost a little bit bigger than her now, and he's two. Um, but, you know, the day-to-day interaction there is that we, you know, he sees everything that we do with Elle. He understands um, what Elle is, is happening with her. Um, as far as the day-to-day stuff that's there, you know, Shirley's still working part-time. Um, I myself decided that I was going to get out of the ER and have since um, finished all of my work to become a nurse practitioner. 
Um, and so from, from that standpoint, I'll, I'll, I'll sit for the, uh, the family nurse practitioner exam probably in December of this year. Um, but right now I, I own and, and run a, um, a personal training, um, fitness coaching business. And so, um, you know, the, the time spent there is a little bit different now. Um, I just really realized that I couldn't do that level of care for people, um, with what was going on with, with Eleanor. And I, and it really, you know, I had to be very honest with myself that, you know, I was really running myself into a big pit of depression and, you know, we, we all kind of pulled ourselves out doing what we knew we needed to do. And that's just surround ourselves with really, really good people. Um, you know, we know that the bills are always going to be there. And so every month, you know, somehow we, we figure out a way to make it happen. Um, with the faith and the knowledge that, you know, if we keep on doing the next best thing, that good things are going to come. Right. And so our, our driving goal here is always just to try to make sure that we reduce any undue stress on Eleanor um, as much as we can. I imagine the, the whole diagnostic odyssey for you was very isolating. What's it like now to have a, become a member of a community around this condition? It's um you know, it means, it means everything. It's, it, it, you know, the things that you think are, and it's not even you think when, before you know that there's a community of people out there that can, that understand the same thing. Like when you find someone that understands what it means to get popped in the face with a G tube, with the medication that you're pushing, like you really don't know. Right. I mean, you can talk about this kind of, you know, anecdotally and you'd be like, Oh yeah, the G tube popped on me. But then when you're, you're dealing with a family that actually has, you know, a son or daughter with a G2, um, somebody that is presenting the same way, someone that understands kind of what that cyclical vomiting looks like and what, you know, fractured sleep is like, you know, you know or then what, around what, the what clock alarm. medication, right, right. You know, the alarm, the weird alarms that go off, you know, six times a day and people are like, what's that for? Like, you know, um, it, it was, it's just like you found, you, you found your, your home. And you realize that that you can really utilize that that home, that second home, as a lot of uh, as a source for an abundance of strength. You know, you see other people that have gotten through this. You you meet other people that are in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, and you're you're filled with this hope because as a father, you know, one of the things that always gets me really really choked up is you know the thought of possibly not being able to walk my daughter in the aisle. Right? This 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 crazy thought that somehow I would, I would outlive my daughter, you know, and then you see that there is life after cystinosis. It's, you know, obviously it's, it's a through line and it drives all the decisions that you make, but there's a way through this. And I remember, um, you know, when I, I finally got to talk to some parents that that was the, the big message there. They said, you know what, you're, you're embarking on some of the hardest stuff you're ever going to be going through, through diet, through the diagnosis, right? Um, this early part is going to be, you know, hellacious, but if you can get through that and if you can get through it together, you know, um, it's worth it and it gets much better. And while it's light years away from the normal that you had before, what we realize is that we're dealing with a new normal now. And so we just, that's, that's the way we approach it now. Our life is, uh, not like most, but it's wildly fulfilling and wildly rich. And we, we laugh a lot. We, we cry at times too, but um, we do it together. And has the experience put you into the world of advocacy at all? 
Um, I, yeah, actually it has. I, I remember, um, when Elle was diagnosed, I looked at Shirley and I said, you know, I'm going to learn everything I can about this, about this. I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can to be the change that I want to see, you know, and I, and I really did want to see a lot of change at that time because I was dealing with, with, you know, uh, you know, a, a daughter who at that point in time, what I felt like was going through undue stress, you know, because, um, you know, the teams were very myopic in their approach and they didn't connect those dots. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to figure out how do I speak for Eleanor and speak for all these other kiddos around me that are undoubtedly going to be coming behind. How do I help them? And so um, initially what we did is we, we, um, I went to my first um, systemosis research network uh, conference and that was in Philadelphia um, so I, we went to Philadelphia and, you know, my, our minds were blown. Uh, Shirley would agree. It was just, yeah. it was, it was incredible. You know, I mean, uh, like it, it was the best thing we could have done at that time for our family. We were only, I think, six months post-diagnosis. And um, luckily this conference was being held that summer and it was definitely the best thing we could have done for our family to be there with a group of families who have been through or are going through the same thing. Um, they just shared so much knowledge, so much love, so much support. We made so many connections. Um, John made a ton of connections. He really was able to reach out and um, meet a lot of people there. And um, just, it was absolutely amazing. It was from there, actually it was from that conference that I found out that there was the ability to to go down to Washington DC for rare disease day. I had no idea that this was even a thing. Um, and so I was able to um, get down there as, uh, as the representative for my district in, in Ohio, where I'm from. And um, I was actually there, I was there and I came with a plan and I was able to sit down with um, my congressmen and women and, and a Senator as well. And it was just like, you know, the world kind of opened up from there. And I realized that, you know, the advocacy that I could do is much, much, much more than what I thought. And um, out, of, out of that advocacy there, and then the incredible experience that I had at the conference, I was actually asked to come on and voted on to um, the executive committee of the CRN. And I've been on um, as the VP of development for the last year. Um, so I, so I took that, that advocacy and I, I really, really, really ran with it. And, um, it's an incredible position. It, it really allowed me to actually speak to other families and which was something that, that I really, really wanted to do. I, I, I felt like, you know, what I really needed in those dark times was somebody who understood what I was going through and was able to kind of help me work through it and work through some of the things and some of the, 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 the nuanced stuff that kind of comes out of a new diagnosis, right? And um, so it was a wonderful opportunity for me to be able to meet with industry professionals, um, to really get my head wrapped around the research. So um, those are, you know, you wanna do things that directly affect the community. And so being in charge of, of, of research advocacy, of, of working on securing, you know, financial assets for these incredible doctors who are doing incredible work around the country and around the world, uh, was in, was was amazing, and I really fell into the role. And then um, I think uh, f about a month ago, I was actually um, asked to come on board as the president of the CRN. So, um, so, so currently, right now, I'm I'm actually the the acting VP of development, and then I'll also be taking over as um, the president of the CRN. So, I definitely 
definitely am advocating. That's for sure. And how's Elle doing today? She is actually doing very well. We actually got bumps to six month nephrology appointments. That's how well she's been. She's been stable and um, everything's looking well. We still do go for three month blood work um, just to make sure we don't have to make any tweaks or if we do have to make any tweaks in her medication. Um, the only big change is we've had to add a urologist on board. And so now she has to have a kidney scan every three months um, just to kind of keep track of her kidneys and make sure they're filtering out okay and not um, slowing down even more. So we're keeping a closer eye on that. Um, but as long as everything stays okay with that, she will just continue to have kidney scans every three months and her nephrology appointments will stay uh, every six months along with her ophthalmology appointments, her eye appointments. Um, and so far, I mean, she's had, she's been healthy. She's, um, we started homeschooling. So she's, she's kind of enjoying that, I guess. It's a new, new thing for her. <laughs> so we're still getting in the groove of that, but she has tons of energy. Uh, she loves being outside still in the rain. She loves her bugs. Um, she loves playing with cousins and friends. So we're very, very happy and very pleased with how well she is doing. John and Shirley Dix, parents of L, a child with cystinosis. John, Shirley, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you thanks so much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.